The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. In any spiritual practice, the lifeline is that whatever the core practices are, we have to return to them again and again and again. They are the lifeline, the lifeblood. They are what transforms an idea of a spiritual practice into a living thing. And so, too, are the various in our tradition, the various forms in which practice takes shape. And so there's the Eightfold Path, there's within our own Song of the Eight Gates, there's every day waking up and coming into this hall and sit for those in residence, for those of you at home, sitting as you do each day, chanting the sutras, studying the teachings, the various forms of practice that we do, returning to them again and again. And that each time we drink from that spring, we are drinking, and so there is some quenching of thirst. And sometimes it's a gulp, and you know it, and sometimes it's just a sip, and it may go almost unnoticed in terms of how it integrates into the system. But the nature of karma and causation is such that what we bring our attention to gets stronger. And so in coming into this ocean gathering twice a year, spring and fall, we are returning to drink from this particular spring, a practice that has come down to us over these many, many hundreds of years. In the Buddha's time, during the rainy seasons, the monks could not, were not allowed to travel. And so they would gather, and what do practitioners do when they gather and they can't go outside to play? (laughs) They practice. And so those became periods of more intensified training and practice. And times when the Sangha would gather together and help strengthen that bond that Sangha is. And so, as I said, traditionally it's It was a monastic form. It was done within the monasteries. And and, and for many would constitute the the, sort of the primary practice time of the year when they might, outside of Ango, go back to their temples and take care of various duties or wander. We train all year round. Here in the monastery, our training schedule pulses a little bit. So summer and winter, a little bit lighter. But every month we're doing session, every Day during the week, we get up to sit. So, But Ango is a, a stepping forward, a greater density of attention and energy. And so this morning, the, the ocean gathering of the Sangha has come together. Here, those who are with us from where you are at home, Hojin Sensei is, is doing something very similar, introducing Ango for the Sangha in the city at the Fire Lotus. Our students in New Zealand have their own ongo opening where they gather together 
and recognize the beginning of Ango, and then they go hike, usually up a hill. Uh, <laughs> the mountains aren't that close. Um, there are, we have students who are incarcerated who, over the years, have learned what Ango is for us and might participate in their own way. Ango is the jewel mirror samadhi in the center of the Ango board at the back, the mind and heart of the way, the mind of each one of us that sees clearly without projecting, without adding delusion to our perceptions. Ango is peaceful dwelling to let go of the chaos and the confusion and the anger and the fear-making that we can create, that is created in the world, so that we can bring forth something more enlightened, enlightened virtues. We can actually be a benefit in the world. And that our lives, short and small though they may seem, have consequence. And so, as I said, when we bring our attention to something, whatever it is, that place of our attention gets hotter. It gains heat. And it gets stronger. And so when we bring our attention to various aspects of our practice of the Dharma, it intensifies. It gets stronger in us. And so part of the functioning, the, the, the skillfulness of Ango, is by bringing more consciousness, more intention, deliberateness to what we do each day, as we go through our day, not just during our morning period of practice, but throughout the day. And the commitment sheet that we use is part of that, to help bring that into understanding. Those moments, all of those moments during the day become warmer. Warmer with the Dharma, with our experience of the Dharma in us, with a sense that I am actually a practitioner. I am practicing. I am aware of that right now. And in that, we come into contact with something. We all know how easy it is to forget. We forget. That's why the Buddha said that one of the essential aspects of mindfulness is remembering. Because we forget. Even here, surrounded by all of these signs of practice and the Dharma, we can, we can forget. And so to keep remembering, to keep remembering, remembering, and in that remembering, there's energy that is being brought forward. So it's really important to appreciate how that's happening because it's, it's how karma works, how we bring our intention to something, how we bring our consciousness to something, bring an intention to something, and then act on it. That place gets more stable, gets more vibrant, more alive in us. And so to think of your daily life particularly for those of you practicing at home, as your training hall, your training ground, that the people in your life, at home, at work, on the street, family, friends, strangers, they're your sangha, right? And just as it's true that in the monastic community that there are people who are there who will support you and affirm you and make you feel positive and very good about your practice, there are others who will irritate you and annoy you and seem to get in your way. So that seems to be true everywhere. (coughs) So use those relationships. That the situations that we find ourselves in, those that you have planned and those that you will come unexpectedly, are your doorways. 
into practice. What is mindfulness now? What do we need to reflect on now in this moment? How do I understand what I am in the midst of, what I am seeing? Can I understand it without clouding it with a lot of presumptions, false ideas? Can I see it as it is? Where are the precepts as I wake up each day? Where are the moral teachings? The Buddha said, as human beings, we live in a moral world because everything we do has consequence. Some of the consequences of the things we do are neutral, but most of it is not. Most of it is either helping or not. And so where is all of that? Dogen said, from top to bottom, the summer, the fall practice period is Buddha ancestors. It covers everything without an inch of land or a speck of earth left out. Traditionally, Ango is in the summer and winter. We, Dalroshi, decided it would be more beneficial and sort of with the calendar of our culture to do it in spring and fall. Summer, people are on vacation. Winter, there's lots of holidays. Not a good time to gather everybody together and really focus as we do during Ango. So spring and fall works very nicely for us. Particularly because there are seasons that are at the thresholds of change and permanence where it's very vivid, particularly here in the Northeast. I love living in the Northeast. (laughs) Partly for that reason. Because the change is just so vivid and vibrant. And we see it, and we're in the midst of it. And as Dogen says... This practice period covers everything without an inch of land or a speck of earth left out. He's talking about at the deepest level. And in a sense, he's, he's asking us to make that true in our awareness. So morning, noon, and night throughout the day, where are you now? And to ask, what have I excluded? What am I excluding? In other words, what part of my day do I sort of forget about? Not important, has nothing to offer It is not a doorway, right? It's just a passage from something that's important to something else that's important, from this moment when I'll practice to the next moment when I practice, but this in-between period, I kind of throw away. Let's look at those moments. What if we were to die during such a moment? Could we come alive in such a moment? Dogen said, when the koan of opening the practice period is taken up, it looks as if something has arrived. When the fishing nets and the birds' nests, that's all, that is all of the aspects that constitute the training period, when those are all thrown away, it looks as if something has left. However, those who participate intimately in the practice period have been covered with opening and closing all along. An inch of grass has not appeared for 10,000 miles, so you might say, give me back the meal money I gave you for these 90 days. <laughs> The monks would offer money for the support, the room and board they would be receiving, and they might say, wait a minute, I haven't received anything. Give me back my money. And he's making a point. He's saying that the practice period, that practice all the time, what we receive is not given to you. It's yours from the beginning. And when we practice intimately, that's what we begin to see more and more. So today is the beginning. And one of the things that I think we can really appreciate about our practice is understanding how how we do things matters. That having a clear beginning, 
a clear point of entry changes something in our mind, right? And so today is that beginning, and then later in November it will end. And so there is a very clear ending to this training period. And that we, we see that sort of permeating training so that we can be very aware of what is the practice in this moment. It's beginning. Three strikes on the bancho, begin the period of zazen. Two strikes ended. Now, that period of practice is ending. We call it zazen. What is the next period of practice that I'm entering? We call that kinhin. And that helps us because we tend to get lost when, when, the tra- when we think of transition, right? Rather than just as just one particular moment, right? Summer is summer. It's not transitioning into fall so that we can really be present in the moment as it occurs. As has been made clear, there's a chief disciple during most of the angos, which is appointed from the group of students, and there are many students among us who, who could be in this position now. And so for various reasons, I appoint the chief disciple um, for each training period. And so they provide... Taikyo will be providing, specifically, during this training period, an example of practice. And so it's sort of the first point at which a practitioner who is just practicing within the Sangha is kind of pulled out and and presented as an example. And what that means for this chief disciple is very important, right? Because they are having their own very particular experience. Right? Everybody else experiences the chief disciple in their own particular way. But the chief disciple is having a very unique experience of the training period. And so, as I mentioned earlier, it's a training position. And we need to really understand that. It's a training position. You know, in a certain sense, when, we're, when we step into a new role, particularly if it has some form of empowerment or responsibility that comes with it, we are both ready, because that's why we're stepping in, and not ready, because we've never done it. We don't really know yet. We've watched it. We may have watched other people, but we don't actually know. We may have imagined ourselves, but you know that's not the same. And so it's very much a period of training and practice for the chief disciple. It is, and, and, the, and the importance is to, for this person, Taikyo, whoever is sitting in that seat, to be sincere and simple and genuine. It's not a performance. It's not performative. That's not what we do in practice. Even when there's a form that makes it seem like it might be like that, that there are words that are being spoken. I feel insufficient and immature in practice. If there's any chief disciple that has not felt that when they stood in that place, I want to know. (laughs) Even though the words are offered to them, if you're not feeling that, something's not happening. It is to be inside of oneself. And let that be the example. Let that speak. That is authentic. And we tend to trust what we experience is authentic, is genuine. Whereas performances, and to serve the Sangha through simple, daily, quiet, humble, sincere practice, to inspire 
by being inspired, to remind others, to provide that example by remembering oneself, to provide an example by letting the Dharma be the guide. This is how the practice of selflessness comes forth. There is a person sitting in this seat, and that's really important. And each person is their person and has personality and history, and we bring all of that to it. And, and that is coming forth. That's part of what inspires us. But we are in a practice of realizing a practice in selflessness. And that speaks very powerfully. It's like pure generosity. The theme for the Ango is intimate language. And in the fascicle that we're studying by Master Dogen, Dogen says, those who say that the world-honored one's words are limited to forms are not students of Buddha Dharma. Although they know that words have form, sound, appearance, so on, they don't yet know that the Buddha does not have form. They are not yet free from ordinary ways of thinking, but Buddha ancestors drop off all experience of body and mind. They use words to turn the Dharma wheel. Hearing their words, many people are benefited because those words spoken are, are spoken selflessly. They're not for oneself. Even though oneself may very well benefit, they are offered for others. They are offered out of compassion. They are rising from wisdom. That's why they benefit. Now, of course, Buddhism in general and Zen in particular has a very interesting relationship with language. As we know, Bodhidharma said that Zen is a special transmission outside the scriptures, the essential teachings, with no reliance on words and letters, but rather are direct pointing to the human mind and the realization of Buddhahood. And if we misunderstand that, we can think that that means that words have no part in this, that words themselves somehow obstruct, obscure, confuse, delude, that somehow we can't touch them. But that's not true. There's nothing in the world like that. There's nothing that has that kind of inherent quality or characteristic. And as is clear, Buddhism and Zen uses words a lot. And so what is intimate language? What is this relationship? How are we to understand language, given that we come into practice with such a well-established, we might even say entrenched, experience of language? Words describe things. They objectify. They establish subject and object. They create distance. They create wars. Do they? Do words do that? Do they have that power? Master Dogen said, there are phrases that clearly affirm. This is in a different fascicle. There are phrases that clearly affirm. There are verses that completely deny. By encountering these phrases and studying them with the entire body and mind, we should remember that, however long the eons you exhaust and however long the eons you take up, there is always a place where you arrive with full mastery. There are phrases that clearly affirm, that liberate the self, that bring us into the world, alive, open, patient, generous, selfless. And so there is power in words 
in our mind to inspire, to remind us of what's important, to illuminate what seems hidden, to awaken what is asleep. And so what we're going to be studying, this ongo, in particular are phrases, sometimes spoken of as slogans, right? And Buddhism does not have, like, uh, the only understanding of this. Advertising knows a bit about slogans, right? It's interesting that when slogans, you know, became so identified with an object, a product, and then the slogan became so entrenched that they don't even need the slogan anymore. There's just a symbol, like on cars. Like I noticed, like, what kind of car is that? You have to know what the symbol is. And so it's like we are being trained to, to have a relationship with a car company. And so phrases are like that. In Buddhism, they're used abundantly. Life is dukkha. Mind is Buddha. Form is emptiness. But they're also used in culture. Black lives matter. I love you. May you know happiness. The power of a phrase to bring something powerful to one place, to one point, to one focus. I'm sure you've all experienced moments where in, by, by, by experiencing the phrase, it might have come to you in Zazen on your own in a moment when you were particularly st- stuck with something. Somebody was just telling me about reading something in a very ordinary setting and just coming across a teaching that they had read many times before and something opened up and shifted right there in public. Phrases have that ability, that power. And so there is something in the phrase, right? It can't just be anything. But what makes the phrase ripe is us. We are what's ripe. The phrase, if it's true, is always ripe. It's always ready. It's always coming to us in full. We are the ones that have to become ripe. That's what practice does. Of course, we also know that there are phrases that divide, that create harm, that rupture. And that's their intention. Their purpose is to cause harm. Their purpose is to inflict some kind of suffering. And so we'll be studying in particular uh, Dogen's teachings on intimate language was quite an exquisite teaching. And along with these teachings of Atisha, who was a a 10th century Indian master, and it said, we're going to be using the um, commentaries. There are a number of translations and commentaries on these phrases. They're fairly well known. They're primarily sort of come to us through the Tibetan tradition, because Atisha went to Tibet and transmitted these phrases there. <clears throat> but they have, they're, they're very um, sort of, um, I think, of like mind and, and language and sensibility with our own tradition. And so these phrases of Atisha will be studying. And there's a practice to them. And as, as, so the commentaries we'll be using primarily of Judy Leaf and Pema Chodron. Pema Chodron, most of you know, she's very well known teacher, has written many wonderful books, and she is a master of the phrase, right? 
When things fall apart, start where you are. (laughs) And Judy Leaf, who many of you know, she's a teacher in the Shambhala tradition, was a student a long time of Trungpa Rinpoche. She's come here many times, was here not too long ago. She's a real friend of the monastery. I wrote her and told her we were going to be using these and her commentary. She was delighted that we were going to be doing that. And she said that these phrases, she said the underpinning of this practice of these phrases is grounding in mindfulness and awareness. That they're teachings, they're also practices, they're reminders, they're pointers. And they're very powerful because they're, they're very short, they're pithy, right? There's just like a, a seed that we can hold in our mind, in our mindfulness, and bring with us into the day and reflect on it. And engage it, in a sense, mine that teaching, that particular teaching, and let it also teach us. Let it mine us. Bring out what the particular teaching that it has to offer. And so because they're so succinct and, and um, form a whole body of path, they're quite wonderful. And so I'll be using the commentaries of Pema Chodron and and Lee and Judy, and then also offering my own words starting today. And so I wanted to start with the first of these, which is to train in the preliminaries. You know, in our sort of acquisitional, appropriating, consumeristic culture, there's a sense of, you know, you just, if you have the money, you just buy something. You put the money down, you get it, you have fulfilled your responsibility. You take it away, it's yours. And we are so embedded in culture as every person is in their own culture. And even if we think we see it and we do see it and we recognize it and we feel like it doesn't have a hold on us, it has a hold on us. That's not a fixed thing, but it's in us. And so we can bring that same kind of mentality into the Dharma practice. A important and famous phrase of Trungpa Rinpoche, spiritual materialism. He recognized that there was, that there was, we, he was teaching in a very materialistic culture, and that that ethos, that view, that belief, that particular form of desire, was coming directly into the Dharma via Dharma practitioners, and of course it would. Why would it not? Why would we not think about this in the same way that we think about other things? Why would we not expect the same as we have been taught to expect in other things? And so these teaching of these training in the preliminaries is very important. It's like, it's like before somebody comes into residency or before somebody wants to become a student, or before you come to session, you have to prepare. You have to do certain things. And it might be very ordinary preparations. You have to pack your bag. You have to take care of your affairs. You have to get somebody to feed the cat. You have to do certain things. And even those, those may take a very ordinary, mundane form, it's all taking place within the sense of, I am going to session. And that is in your consciousness. And that is helping you to prepare so that when you arrive, you're ready. 
And that kind of preparation is really important. When somebody comes into residency, we speak with them. We have quite a thoroughgoing um, interview following a quite thoroughgoing application. <laughs> and that is both so we can get to know that person a little bit and, and have a sense of how this is going to work for them. And they also begin to get a sense of what they're stepping into. Because we know they already have ideas. And they is lots of you. <laughs> I came here with lots of ideas. We have, of course we do. And so part of all of that process that we call an application process is much more important. It's, it's helping that person to prepare, to begin to shift their mind towards and into something. And so these four reminders, and to think of these preliminaries as not just something for beginners or that we just do once. Preliminary here means foundational, means something essential, means something that continues to be valuable. And so the first of these is the preciousness of human life. To bring this to mind, to meditate and contemplate, to live in the sense, to sit in the sense that this life is precious. Right? To appreciate the life that we have, that we can be here today, that our mind and body and emotions and psychology and just our whole being is sufficient so that we can be here today. We can be practicing. We can be in our life in the way that we are that we have family and friends, that we have whatever degrees of stability, agency, financial, all the things that constitute a reasonably stable life. To appreciate that. To appreciate the season, the earth, relationships. All of us have moments, I'm hoping that all of us have had moments of wonder, of awe, where we touch or touch by something in some moment that we know that there is something larger, that we are somehow in the midst of something beyond just our ordinary experience, something unnameable. We have all been in the presence of beauty, have experienced love, generosity. I hope we've all had moments, I have moments where I think, where I'm experiencing something, often on a Sunday when I go back to the Abbassy and I sit down in the midst of trees and listen to a piece of music. And very often my thought is, this is an example of the best of what we are. This is what we're capable of. The preciousness of human life. Why is that so important? The second reminder helps us to understand that. The certainty of impermanence and death. It is precious because it does not last. Because it is fleeting. Because it is fragile. We have all seen death. If not up close in our world. It is inescapable. We know that we are going to die. And we may know that up close. We may know that way over there somewhere. And even if we try to ignore it, 
there's an there's a ancient genetic <laughs> primordial aspect of us that knows. And that may be the very thing that we're trying to be distant from. Within our circle of friends and family, we know that life does not go on forever. There was a student here this week who was recently diagnosed with a serious case of cancer. And she said, one day you're healthy, and then the next day, bam! Your world is different. Your life has changed. Logan says, although we think we may live to 70 or 80 or 100, we don't know. He says, we die when we must die. And though we may try to push it away, we cannot. It's futile. It's harmful. And certainty here means that we will experience it. And the gift of Buddhism is that kind of fearlessness to, with that certainty to face what we cannot escape. Because that's the only way. And so to reflect on that. So that's part of this first phrase, this four reminders, part of preparing us. And at the very center of all of that is the inescapable nature of karma. That our lives are run through with cause and effect. Buddhism teaches they are, in fact, in every moment, happening because of cause and effect. That we cannot avoid the effects of our actions. All of our intentional actions have consequence. If we do not understand that, the Buddha says, we will not Simply, we will simply not be able to practice. Not well. We have to understand this. And to know that karma is not negative, it's not positive, it's not good or bad in and of itself. It may arise from a positive or negative intention, but the action itself is just action. And it has a consequence. And that consequence itself is not inherently good or bad, because nothing possesses that kind of inherent quality. But that consequence is experienced by the person or persons as helpful or hurtful. And so karma is how we we create samsara and suffering. But karma is also how we liberate our samsara and suffering. When we practice, we we are in the midst of creating karma. Beneficial. Compassionate karma. And so to remember the truth of this helps us to stay on the path. It helps us to stay close to our intentions and our vows. It helps us to be aware of what we're doing. It helps us to take responsibility when we need to. I mean, just think of a moment where you've had a very strong desire to do something that you know is not in your best interest, but you want that thing And in a sense, that whole mechanism just wants you to keep your focus very narrow, right? Very short. Just satisfy the desire. But if because of your mindfulness, you're able to recognize what happens is happening and pause and open your view, raise your view a little bit and see see what happens next, because you already know. And to see the effect that that has, can have on calming that desire. Because while I may want that, I don't want that. And so to practice within karma 
is helpful. <laughs> and so we can think of that as each day that we wake up, I wake up and I think, I am going to affect the world today. Okay, you don't get to opt out of that. It's not a choice. <laughs> the choice is how. How am I going to affect the world today? That's why it's so important to do liturgy. This is how. This is my intention of how I am going to affect the world today. And then the fourth reminder is the truth of suffering, of dukkha, for ourselves and others. We live in this human body. And living in this human body means we will experience pain, we will experience sickness, we will age, we are aging, we will die. Simple truths. And that some of those are going to be painful. Because the physical body works that way. And sometimes that pain can be mitigated and sometimes it may not. We have emotions. We have what we call our psychological being, our mental being, that bring forth the clashes, greed, anger, delusion, pride and jealousy, depression, loneliness, fear, anguish, confusion. And we carry that within us. We wear that in our body. We wear it on our faces. It gets etched into our being. We have dreams in it. We give it voice. We act out on it. And some people devote themselves to creating suffering. Think of that. Some people have devoted, are devoting their lives to creating suffering. But there are others who are not. Many others who are devoting themselves to ending suffering, to alleviating suffering, to diminishing suffering, to doing whatever we can. That's our path. And so within those four reminders, which really plants us very decisively, grounds us in the reality of our lives. And it's so important to be aware of those realities because there are many forces that would have you forget, that would have you believe that you can win at this game somehow. (laughs) Beat it. The Buddha said, there is no There is no fulfillment in that path. It is not possible. And so the fifth aspect, sort of implicit aspect of this, these four reminders, is, okay, given all of this, now what? Now this. Ango, the path, the Dharma, practicing. In a way, and of course I'm biased, (laughs) but you know, when we look at it clearly, it's like, how could you not? What else are you going to do? And if it's not this, make it something that basically has the guts of this, that brings you to some true doorway. And so the practice of these phrases, intimate language, Studying these teachings will be the theme of our ango. And be offering mandos and fasatsus and talks. I'll be basically working through them in the talks and the various things that I'll be offering. The other teachers might be touching on them in their own ways. 
as we're studying these other commentaries as well. So it's quite rich. And, you know, the nice thing about these, these phrases is they're, they're initially very accessible, right? And, um, and there are more. They have depth. And so Dogen said, from top to bottom, this practice period is Buddha ancestors. It covers everything without an inch of land or speck of earth left out. It is an anchoring peg that is neither new nor old. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as an anchoring peg, right, that helps to hold us to our natural mind, right, to our basic state. So the practice period is an anchoring peg that is neither new nor old. It has never arrived and will never leave. It's not a thing. It, it explodes into being in every moment and passes away. It is what happens every day. It is whatever we will do over the next weeks and months. Whatever we will do is what the Anga will be. It's the size of your fist and takes the form of grabbing you by the nose. When the practice period is open, the empty sky cracks apart and all of space is dissolved. When the practice period is closed, the earth explodes, leaving no place undisturbed. It's large, Dogen is saying. And it has consequence. It breaks down the barriers, right? drops the walls, clears the sky, brightens the sun and moon. And all of that is our images for what's happening inside of us. That's why Ango is so important. When the Buddha was dying, the last thing he said to his students was, now, students, I exhort you, all fabrications, everything that you can see, everything that your mind creates, every perception, everything you know, everything you touch, is subject to ending and decay. Find your fulfillment through careful attention. Find your fulfillment through careful attention. So that's a good way to close this opening. Being carefully attentive, let us be on this, continue and really enter in fully in this angle, into this path of finding our fulfillment. And the important thing to appreciate is that when you are more and more yourself, fulfilled, alive, vibrant. And even within your struggles, within our struggles, the more we are clear in our own path, that we have a path we can take refuge, that we can return to our training, we can remember what's important to remember, all of those things, even in the midst of our struggles, that is an example That is a living example of how to be in the world imperfectly and without anxiety and in accord. And so that, the commitment to that is how we can wake up in the day, each day, and ask, what do I want my contribution to be? Don't think of it in in terms of the goods you will produce, the results you will bring about, but more in terms of That's more the materialistic mind, more in terms of 
How am I going to give myself to this day? What do I want to place at the center of my awareness? What are the things that I really need to pay attention to that I do forget? What are the people or places that I have to be very carefully aware of because I get stuck? And bring that to mind. And then, that's a good day. All right? So let's have some good days. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.